face the daily temptation to give up or to give in, we not only need to understand our responsibility to kill sin, but also to cultivate virtue, which is really the habit-forming strength of character. If our last session focused on the bad to avoid, this session focuses on the good to pursue, and we can pursue it with the power of God's divine nature. If we are to overcome temptation and kill sin by the power of the Spirit, it must be done in the pursuit of something positive, of growth, of the cultivation of true life. The second way you flex spiritual muscle in the face of temptation is by cultivating virtue. And in order to do that, the Apostle Peter tells us in his second letter that there's something we need to have, something we need to do, and something we need to see. Let's read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. Peter tells us that there's something you need to have if you're going to kill sin. There's something you need to have if you're gonna cultivate character and virtue in your life. What is it? Is it just powerful moral effort? His answer is no. You need divine power. Why? Because we've already learned in the book of Romans that we were actually filled with sin. We were habitats for sin. But in Christ, we become habitats for divinity. We now have this supernatural power. Everything we need, Peter says, to thriving in life and godliness. What this means is huge for Christian living. Now, what is godliness? He tells us that this is something we are to cultivate. I think a lot of people have a misconception about godliness. Most people think of godliness and holiness as holier-than-thou-ness. Like, I'm holy, don't touch me. Or I'm holy, therefore I'm better than you. And sadly, haven't we all come across to other people like that at points in our life? And the Christian community often comes across like that to broader society as though they are holier than thou. But that's not what the Bible is saying when it talks about holiness and godliness. Godliness is not some kind of abstract standard that people make up according to their own opinions. Nor is godliness an unattainable goal of sinless perfection. Godliness is about reflecting God, reflecting the very one who loves you and reflecting that towards others. The way you treat people, the way you conduct yourself is an opportunity to reflect God's character. I'm not going to steal from you because God doesn't steal. I'm not going to lie to you because God will never lie to you. I'm not going to cheat on you because God will never cheat on us. Now we begin to see why godliness is so attractive. The evidence that you have embraced grace is godliness. Now we must be careful here 
Godliness does not bring about the grace of God. The grace of God brings about godliness. That is what Peter makes clear. It is a gift. But far from making godliness optional, it actually makes it vital. The gospel doesn't minimize godliness. It motivates godliness. It stirs up a willingness to have your life shaped by the will and calling of God. That is why ungodliness is an evil temptation that must be resisted. In the Apostle Paul's letter to Pastor Titus, he rebukes people who claim to know God, but in their works deny him. That is ungodliness. It's a trap that Satan sets for us and loves it when we fall in. But we overcome that temptation by taking up the responsibility to lead godly lives. This means when we wake up in the morning, we, we read our Bibles and we ask God to help us not just know and understand, but to apply the very truths that we have read, that we seek for his help so that we might practice them in each and every day. And the more that we do, these things will feel like second nature. See, the Apostle Peter is saying something very profound here. He's saying that through faith, we all have a share in the divine nature because it's been granted to you. And that word granted means it is a gift. It's already been given. It is your possession, no strings attached. And you must have this in order to kill sin and grow in the face of temptation. It doesn't mean you become God. Rather, you become partakers of the divine nature. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. This life is given by God's power. It's not natural. It is supernatural. It's the divine nature planted in the inner being of the sinner. That is the essence of the gospel. Growth, then, is not only a possibility in the Christian life. It is a necessity because the Spirit dwells in you. There's something you need to have, but that also means that there's something you need to do. You have not only divine power, but you have responsibility. So in the same way that we have a responsibility to kill sin, and it doesn't just happen passively, we also have a responsibility to cultivate virtue. And it also doesn't just happen overnight and automatically. In fact, Peter says here in, in his letter, add to your faith or make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. You might say, wait a minute, how does that work then with faith? If I have to add all these things, if I have to do all these things, how does that work with faith? Well, here's the answer. It is the very nature of faith in God that sets the heart to work. He's given me this new nature, and because he's going to perfect me, that drives me to work hard in the Christian life. And that's why Peter uses this phrase, give all diligence to your growth. Or my translation, do whatever you need to do to grow. Develop one virtue in exercise of another. Each grace springing out of and maturing the next grace. So we are granted this wonderful gift through faith. And as you exercise your faith, as you put it into practice, it will produce virtue. So he is saying that you exercise your faith 
and that is what produces virtue. Now, virtue here does not mean perfection, per se, but vigorous action. Character is what you become through habit and choice. Virtue is what happens when those choices are wise and good. Vice is what happens when they are sinful. We must work on our character. The triumphant David and Goliath moments are always preceded by a thousand smaller but no less important moments. Moments in which choices are made. Peter says, add to your virtue knowledge. He says, apply your mind, study. I don't know how you have learned in the Christian faith, but for me, when I first believed on the gospel, I was up in the San Francisco Bay Area where almost all of my friends rejected Christianity. So every single day, I would receive questions about my faith. I was challenged. I was forced to provide answers the best that I could. So the way that I really learned about faith by applying this vigorous action to knowledge, to understand, was that I wanted to give an answer to the questions that people were asking about who Jesus was. I had to study. I wanted to study. Now, all of us have different inclinations towards reading and studying, but every Christian is called to learn. And the challenges of life often bring you to the place where you realize your need to learn more of God's word. Apply your mind to the truth of the gospel. Read, study, pray it in, talk about it, discuss it, dream about it. We must give ourselves to knowledge. And with knowledge, he says, self-control. Or other translations say temperance. It means that you're holding your passions and desires in your hand. It means that your passions don't rule over you. It means that you rule over your passions. And then you add to this steadfastness, which really is patient endurance. And there's a difference here than I think the way we naturally think about endurance. When temptation comes or trials come, most of us think about steadfastness as simply getting through it. Here comes the trial. Here comes Satan. I guess I'll just get through it. But that's not what the word means. It means a heroic endurance. It means I am going to face this and I'm going to go through this for God's glory because when I choose truth in the face of a lie, I'm actually showing off Jesus to the world. I'm showing that Jesus is the most important thing to my heart. I'm showing the world what matters most. And it really speaks of Christ. For when Christ endured suffering and endured the cross, he endured it heroically, thus showing his love for us. Jesus didn't just come into this world just to avoid trouble. He had heroic endurance. The reason he refrained from sin and endured temptation was not repression, but divine heroism because of what was gained through it, because of the joy that was set before him, which was the glory of his father and the salvation of people. Through his suffering, he purchased our souls. It was heroic endurance. Well, now you might say, well, Jesus is perfect. Yes, and we are not but we have become partakers of the divine nature. 
And though we will not be perfected this side of eternity, we can grow here and now by making small heroic choices to choose Christ on a daily basis and to endure. And we add to that godliness, this devotion to God. One of the great differences between the moralist and the Christian is that the Christian delights in God. Jonathan Edwards once said this so wonderfully. See, many people see godliness and holiness as a burden you have to carry around, like great. Now I've gotta be godly, great. Now I have to be holy. But what most don't understand is that it is a joy. It's a joy to reflect the one who loves you. It is a joy to reflect the one who purchased you, the one who created you. Add to that, Peter says, brotherly affection. The kind of love that we are to show within the Christian community. The Bible calls us a family. Now we're supposed to act like it. Brothers and sisters in Christ sharing the love of Christ with one another. The kind of love that is saturated with charity. This is not a selfish love, but rather a selfless love. Which is important for the church because if we're honest, most of our relationships are determined on the basis of what we get out of them. And we tend to measure whether or not we're going to do life together with other people, depending on how much it's going to benefit us. But that's just a worldly way of thinking about relationship. But according to Peter, relationships in the Christian community is defined not by being served, but by serving. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Which is really convicting. You know why? Because that means that you and I should love difficult people. You and I should love those people that when you see them, you think, oh, I'm not sure they deserve it. In that moment, remember the gospel. You and I deserve hell. And yet Jesus Christ has given us life. Therefore, let's do the gospel math and serve one another. If I deserve this and yet God has given me an everlasting love, should I not also serve and love my brothers and sisters, and the people around me in my neighborhood. God has given you grace. Grace is what melts your heart. Grace is what enables you to love difficult people. And that's how Peter ends. Add to this love, this divine love, the very love of God, which is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. This compels us to deny ourselves for the benefit of others. But I want you to notice that this is a process and you are going to be growing in these things. And just like you need to be killing sin throughout your life, you need to keep on cultivating these virtues. Why? Because we so easily drift away. We let down our guard and we drop our efforts. Knowing that this is a temptation for us, Peter tells us lastly that there's something you need to see. You need divine perspective. You need to see all of life and your own heart through the very lens of God. You need this perspective and it changes things and it changes you. Let's read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, 
and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Unless we're giving ourselves to these things that we've just discussed, all these positives, all these virtues, we will become what Peter says, nearsighted and ineffective, blind, forgetting what Jesus has done for us. There is a great discipline to remembering. We're told again and again in the scriptures to do it. So what does it mean to remember? It doesn't just mean to know the truth. It also means to apply the truth. It doesn't mean that information just disappears from your brain. For example, it's like what God says in the Old Testament. He says, I will remember your sins no more. Now, we all know that the sins that we've done don't escape the mind of God like he forgot. He's, he's God after all. So what does he mean? He's essentially saying this. I will not use your sins against you. I will not look at you through your sins any longer. I will look at you through my son. See, it's one thing to know the truth. It's another thing to look at everything through the truth. And some of you might even say in your own heart, I, I haven't forgotten. You know, I, I remember it, it's there. I, I understand the gospel. But this list here in 2 Peter chapter 1 acts as a sort of test to see if you're actually using the truth. And if we're not growing in it and acting upon it, Peter says you're nearsighted. Yes, it may have not disappeared from your brain, but you're not choosing to, to use it and to act on it. And at that point, you can't even see beyond yourself. You've become self-occupied once again. It is a great and constant temptation in the Christian life. But this list also provides a way we can measure our growth in the gospel. Because Peter says, and this is very encouraging, if these things are yours, guess what? You won't be unfruitful or ineffective. And I love that word unfruitful because in the Greek, it means to be overflowing or superabounding. It's a dramatic term. I love it. Meaning it's not full until it's pouring over. Pretty much how I like my coffee. Like it's not full until it's just pouring over. If it's pouring out, then it's full. And that's what Peter means by being fruitful, abounding. You have this super abundance in the knowledge of Jesus. And it is to produce all kinds of fruit in your life. So give your attention to these things. Think about them, talk about them, pray through them, encourage one another in them. We have a job to do. There are things that must be cultivated. But know this, Christianity does not begin with works. It begins with faith, receiving from God, acknowledging what God has done for you, what he's given to you. But listen, it begins with faith, but it results in works. John Owen said this, quote, it is the expectation of faith that sets the heart on work. The Christian life is hard. We must work. We must strive, yet we strive in the spirit. It takes effort. We discipline ourselves, but it is grace-fueled effort. When it comes to facing temptation, there is a fight. 
and there is a struggle. But there can also be a joy in knowing who we are in Christ. And our job, those of us who believe as as a community, is to encourage one another in this. It doesn't mean that we're already perfected, but it means there should be evidence of grace. And when we see it, we should encourage one another. Encourage your wife, encourage your husband, encourage your children, encourage your friends, encourage your church. When you see grace, praise God for it. Be a community. Don't just talk about community. Live as a community. When you see these things, when you see brotherly affection happen, praise God for it. And go up to your brother or sister in Christ and say, hey, I just want you to know, I saw you show godliness or I saw you show brotherly affection. Let's praise God for that and let's help one another to see evidence of grace. We desperately need it. And as we do so, we leave a legacy as we cultivate these things and as we press on towards Jesus Christ, it not only influences our inner sphere, but all the lives that we come into contact with. And the legacy we leave is the person we become. That is why our choices now matter. And that is why we must fight the temptation to give in or to give up. We must fight the temptation to be sub-Christian or super-Christian or semi-Christian. Though we are all far from perfect. I don't know about you, but I don't want to just maintain. I want to press on, as Paul told us to do in his letter to the Philippians. We are called to work together to push back the kingdom of darkness and see lives made new by the power of the gospel because as we've learned, the truths of heaven enable you to overcome all the lies of hell. You have this incredible relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Do not give up because Christ is in you. The only reason you would ever have to give up is if Jesus Christ went back into the grave, and that's not gonna happen. He has ascended, he has resurrected, and he dwells in you by the Holy Spirit. That means you have an incredible purpose, so give yourself to it, throw yourself into it. Even the smallest of daily decisions matters. And when you are done, God will take you home, and you will be glorified. Because of the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus, we can be sure of the promises of God and be confident that he can fulfill his purposes in and through us. Let's lay hold of that promise. Let's act like it. Let's put it into practice. Let's not just know the truth. Let's use the truth. For if you know the king and follow him through the wilderness and through all the temptations of life, building on the truth, and not the lie, your legacy will not be perfection, but it will point others to grace. My prayer is that the impression that I leave, the influence that I impart to others, would simply point them to Jesus. After all, he is what the world needs. He is what matters most. And when temptation comes, you and I, have the privilege of showing it.